And with that background, we pick it up in chapter 17, and we read this. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle, and were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. It's in the land of Israel, of course. And they camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes, Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines, named Goliath, from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, probably around nine feet, because a cubit is generally considered 18 inches. He was armed with a bronze helmet on his head, he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had a bronze armor on his legs and bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. So Goliath had an armor-bearer with him, and the weight of his armament is estimated between to be 150 and 200 pounds. Verse 8. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, who had eight sons. And the man was old and advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to battle. The names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, Abinadah, excuse me, Abinadah, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went in return from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So this is the backdrop to this famous story of David and Goliath where Saul is the king. There has already been war with the Philistines. There's been, going back to Samson in the book of Judges, there was ongoing war with this, these nomadic people on the coastal regions. No one really knows historically where they came from, the Philistines. But they worshiped Dagon, the fish god. They were a ruthless people. They were obviously a godless people, a violent people. And they were used by God and allowed by God to subjugate his people to them for their sins. But when the people would cry out to God, he would give them a deliverer like he did with Samson. So Samson's great victories all came against the Philistines as an answer to prayer from the nation of Israel crying out for deliverance from the Philistines. This is ongoing war with the Philistines. But unlike the Amalekites, which we saw a couple weeks ago, that war went perpetually through right up until the time of Herod the Great trying to kill baby Jesus the descendancy of the Amalekites, and that that's a more symbolic war of Satan's war on God's people, Israel, and the promised Messiah, Jesus, to come through them. But the war with the Philistines went on for centuries and centuries. Eventually, you don't really hear about the Philistines anymore. They just kind of dissipate into the uh, annals of history. We don't know much about them. But at this time, they certainly were a very real enemy, and they were occupying the land, and they would set up uh, garrisons to subjugate Israel. And we want to remember this, that the promised land is a promised land for the people of Israel. And so long as they were willing to repent and make things right with the Lord, God would restore to them what was theirs. 
you go back to the original plans that God had with Joshua when they went into the land to conquer it, they were to conquer the land. They were not to be subject to the people of the land and their idols and their ways of worship and those things contrary to God, their lawlessness and their evil. They were to rule that land under God's law and to have dominion over it according to his plans and purposes for them. So, so long as God's people repent and would be right, they would have every reason to believe that they would have victory in their land. Because it's important to understand the context. This is in Judah. So it's not Israel picking a fight with Syrians in Damascus or something. This is the promised land that belonged to them. This is their promised land. And so if they're right with the Lord, this is their victory. Now, we saw back in chapters 13 and 14 where Jonathan, Saul's son, took the initiative, started the war with the Philistines, and then in chapter 14 took it forward when he went... You know, he climbed the rock with his armor bearer and had a great victory. So there's been victory, and now it's sort of this like stalemate where suddenly the two armies are amassed together looking at each other, and neither one's backing down. But it's a, it's a spiritual battle, of course. It's always a spiritual battle. When David gets into this, we're going to see that in just a moment. It's always a spiritual battle, but, you know, war is always a psychological battle, too. It's head games. It's a chessboard. It, it really is. So if you're England and you send Neville Chamberlain to negotiate with Adolf Hitler over Czechoslovakia, good luck with that. You'll come home with a worthless piece of paper saying peace in our time when it's anything but. War is a psychological game. It's head games. And it's a lot like sports. We know uh, Kelly Slater, the great pro surfer Kelly Slater, said this in the peak of his career. He won 85% of his competitions before he ever touched the water. It's world famous in pro surfing history that... You never, ever shake Kelly Slater's hand before a heat. It's like kryptonite. It's true. This is absolutely true. It's psychological. And, and there's people that like, especially athletes, they'll look for any psychological edge you have. When I was an elite surfer in the top ten of the world, certain guys, I didn't want to look at them before I competed. You know, you, you, you just kind of like, I don't even know how tennis players, you know, warm up with each other before they're playing in the finals of Wimbledon, but that's, it's all psychological. And that's sports. War is much more so. We've seen the psychological games that governments play with each other, and they're going on all over the world right now. There's all kinds of head games going on between Russia and Ukraine, U.S. and China, U.S. and Iran, U.K. and what's left of the British Empire with uh, India. I mean, there's all these alliances shifting, right? There's just all these things going on right now, and there's psychological war. It's all head games. Like just even having 30 nuclear heads, nuclear missiles like the North Koreans have, that's nothing in the world of nuclear weapons. Russia has 4,500 of them. We've got about 3,200. Russia has the most. North Korea's got like 20 nuclear warheads. But it's psychological. Iran have nuclear weapons is psychological because Israel has nuclear weapons. So it's psychological over their surrounding neighbors that hate them. So if Iran gets nuclear weapons, it's psychological. But it's all still spiritual, isn't it, right? Because the thing I'm talking about right now on the world geopolitical map is what? It's biblical. It's all biblical. All these people are biblical players in God's word for the end game. It's all head games. It can get so complicated unless you trust in the Lord. Then it's so simple. Because childlike faith in Jesus makes you and I superior to any world dictator, totalitarian, authoritarian, or any communist, socialist, Marxist, 
godless, evil regime. You plus Jesus is peace. You plus Jesus is your calling. You plus Jesus is a purpose in life. You plus Jesus is victory over sin. You plus Jesus is victory over the devil. You plus Jesus is victory over the grave. All these players, they come and go. They're going to do what they're going to do. And God's going to do what he's going to do. And he said in Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing against the Lord and his anointed? You should kiss the sun while you can and bow the knee and pay homage because we all will in eternity. But yet we live in this life. We have this glory in earth and vessels when we give our life to Christ. And every day is a spiritual battle. And every day does have psychological warfare. Every day there are people that try and bully us and intimidate us and silence us and make us ashamed for what's right and want us to cower in fear. Every day God does allow, especially for walking in sin, things to chasten us to force us to be dependent upon him and turn from that sin and make things right with him. God allows these things every day. And the key issue is that when we're right with the Lord in our heart, we're going to have peace. There is no peace for the wicked, God says, but he'll keep the imperfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee because he trusts in thee, is what he said to the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus says, my peace I give to you. I was in a horrible turbulence last night, as bad as it gets. And you flyers, you've seen bad turbulence. Coming to Salt Lake last night, it was as bad as it gets. Where Pastor Joy just closed his eyes, meditated in Russian, and then thought of every scripture I know about peace. Not because I was afraid of going down. I just don't like the ride I can't get off. It's like six flags if you can't get off. I just want to get off, and I couldn't get off. I'm like, it's okay. We're just going to hold it together here. And it'll keep us in perfect peace. When this giant comes out every day, and we all have giants that come out and they taunt us, they taunt our faith, they taunt our God, they taunt what's right and wrong, they twist truth and make it falsehood, and they take falsehood and try to make it truth, they take the simple and make it complicated, you continue to stand in with childlike faith and know that the battle is the Lord's. But giants are giants, and giants are real. And there is a spiritual battle behind the attacks that come against us. And there is psychological warfare behind the attacks that come against us sometimes in our own personal lives with bosses, former spouses, neighbors. It's so funny. My wife and I, ironically, and I were talking last week. Out of X amount of people, how many do you think are psychopaths? Like, not your normal marriage conversation. But we were having this conversation about, oh, you know, when you drive across country, you can have these conversations. And, and I was saying, well, you know, most people we know are very pretty normal functioning human beings, so it can't be that high. And I figured maybe one in a thousand. And wouldn't you know, I was watching a documentary that said, psychopaths are one in a hundred. I thought, wow. And, and, and they have power, positions of power. They're in charge of, you know, they're, they're, they're courtroom judges. They're police officers. They're murderers in Pelican Bay. They're, they're all kinds of people that are functioning psychopaths. And I was like, wow, that's kind of scary, you know, because me and Jennifer thought one in a thousand. I was like, one in a hundred. Goliaths are there. Most of you think reasonably and rationally, but not, but you think other people think reasonably and rationally, but not all people do think reasonably and rationally. And you just think like, why can't we just get along and act like normal adults here? And you understand why they can't. And it might be physiological, psychological, like a psychopath. It could be sociological, like a sociopath. It could just be full narcissism. But in the end, it could just be demonic. You know, there are demonic people that come against 
believers of Jesus Christ with one purpose, to disrupt, unsettle, and destroy your faith and to make life difficult for you. And whether they're in positions of power over you or just someone that just comes in your little circle for like 10 minutes to try and wreck your day when you're just in line to get a coffee, they're out there. There are unhealthy human beings that the devil will use to attack you when you're trying to live a peaceful life for Jesus Christ. And then there are people that are maybe normal that become demonic around you because the devil's trying to discourage you because you're trying to go forward in the things of the Lord. We used to say this all the time. Why do these things always seem to happen to us? I was walking with my daughter Hannah last week in Vero Beach, and I said to her, I was going for a walk. You know, it's nice when you go for a walk with your daughter by yourself. You know, we just get her all by yourself. Hannah Gallagher, walking through McCanch Park. And I said, Hannah, you know, all of your other siblings have spiritual battles. Leah goes for it. She has spiritual battles. Her and Jake have spiritual battles. Timmy and Eric have spiritual battles. And, and Luke and Bell certainly have spiritual battles. I go, but you, Hannah, you and Nate have much more profound spiritual battles. They were in Chattanooga, Tennessee a few weeks ago for a Salvation Army event for youth. Nate gets invited to these things like a young Billy Graham to these random things that you just don't even see how it happens. So Salvation Army is an international ministry, of course, and they had hundreds and hundreds of youth in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And it was a makeup for something that was canceled during COVID. So Nate and Hannah went there, and they got to do this riverboat thing on the, on, you know, there in Chattanooga. And I just drove through Chattanooga a year and a half ago with Jennifer when we brought Luke from Denver to Florida so I could picture it all. And they, they posted all these pictures of like their fun. And here's the general. He's like the Supreme General for the Salvation Army, like super important person from England. And there he is with Nate and Hannah. It was kind of cool, and they're all in uniform. And, you know, they have all these people in uniforms, and there's Nate with his surf shirt on from Vero Beach connecting with the 1,000 youth or whatever it was. But... In the midst of all that, I found out, I said, how was Tennessee? And Hannah said, I had a severe headache the entire time. I had a migraine. And I just, you know, like, I hate the devil. I said, you know, Hannah, you'd think you could just go to Chattanooga and just have a good time with your husband with a paid-for weekend by Salvation Army, minister to youth, and just have a good time and enjoy the riverboat cruise with the DJ. But no, that's not how it works, is it, WG? It's a spiritual battle. There are giants that come out that are nine feet tall and just say, what? And you're like, not again. He's calling me again. They're calling me again. It's the neighbor again. It's them again. And it's so real, isn't it, WG? It's so real. I just told Hannah, I got to wrap up this story. I just said, Hannah, you know, your, your siblings, they know spiritual battles, and they, they might know bigger ones in the future, but you and Nate, I go, Hannah, I spent 14 months in Vermont and found out how hard the devil will fight for one soul. I led one person to the Lord in 14 months of my life with Jennifer, and we went to hell and back to win one person to Christ. And I said, so I'm sorry you had a migraine in your Chattanooga weekend, but I am very thankful that you served the Lord faithfully with your husband. And uh, in transparency and insincerity, and that's why your mom and I are going to always do whatever we can to help you guys. And that's why the other siblings understand you get more because you're like Levites because you go through way more and they all know it and they all respect it. And we're going to always have your back. The battle's real, WG. No matter how much you wish Goliath wasn't there coming out talking trash, quoting his God against your God, pitting his false worldview against your true worldview, he is very real and he is there. But what the Lord looks for, for the eyes of the Lord do go to and fro over the face of the earth, looking to show himself strong on behalf of those men and women who would be loyal to him, is look for those who simply are available and are real 
in their faith. Not playing games. We can all do that. I can, you can, but just real. Like just really real with the living God, like a heart for God. And that's why David's parenthetical in verses 12 through 15. Because here's this whole thing, this giant, it's like, oh, and all of a sudden we get this parenthetical thought about, oh, there's David. You know, like he's like, his dad's really old. He's the youngest in a large family. He's child number eight. There's a big age discrepancy with his older brothers. And uh, three of them are enlisted in Saul's army. And David's like the guy with the sheep. But he's our hero. And we read on. Verse 16, from the battle that's psychological, because it says the Israelites were dismayed and greatly afraid, which is exactly with the intention of Goliath with the power of the devil coming out, taunting and intimidating God's people. But David is the contrast. He's a simple faith, like childlike faith, we all, that we all need to have. Verse 16, and the Philistines drew near and presented himself, and the Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. Then Jesse said to his son David, take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain, these 10 loaves, and run to your brothers at camp, and carry these 10 cheeses to the captain of their thousand, and see how your brothers fare, and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, took the things and went as Jesse commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies with the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was a champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming out from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke accordingly, according to the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing, and these people answered him as the first one did. Now, when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. And then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go out and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he's a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered it, the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose against me, I caught it by its beard and I struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing as defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with his coat of mail. David fastened his sword in his armor, tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, 
I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. So here's the progression of the story. David gets to the battlefront. He becomes aware of what's going on. And, you know, when you're a woman of God or a man of God, and you just have a heart for God, like David would meditate upon the Lord. Of course, he gave us so many of the Psalms that are so wonderful where he's reflective and meditating, talking about the Lord. But when your thoughts are on the Lord, like thinking God's thoughts after him, when you come into a situation like this, you're ready for it. You're not thrown off by it. You're ready for it, and you got it. And you can do it. And, you, and you're ready for it. Excuse me. Can you close that door? That's got to go somewhere else. We have a disturbance in the hall. Fred, why don't you go out there with him, make sure that's resolved? Yeah? It's all good. No big deal. I just don't want to take away. Hey, it's a good study, huh? Wow. It's like a little timeout, like TV timeout. Come right back to it. So this is our backdrop. So David comes in a situation. He's aware of it. Here's something very interesting, too, about this story. You ready? Since Goliath is a giant, who's the next tallest person in the land? Saul. It's kind of like basketball, right? When you pick teams for basketball, one team gets the tallest guy, and one team gets the next tallest guy. They're called centers, right? Or a women's team. The tallest girl, the tallest girl. They call that the one. You're playing the one spot, the center. Now, if we're all there, Philistine or Israelite, and we see this guy coming out nine feet, we look at our side, and our tallest guy is that guy, the king. Yeah, he's not going for it. And by the way, you know who might be the next tallest guy? David's brother. Because back in the previous chapter, when Samuel looked at him, it says for, uh, that he was, the Lord said to Samuel when he saw it alive, he said, do not look at his appearance or his physical stature. He looked like a first-round draft pick. Isn't it interesting that the, probably, well, we know for sure Saul was the tallest guy. And Eliab, David's older brother, was that guy. Right? Isn't it interesting that that guy, your big brother, and that guy, your boss, are telling you you're prideful and you can't do it, or if you're going to do it, do it where you represent me? Isn't that just like the world? Isn't that just like people at work? You're like, it's crazy. You're going to fight a giant, and your biggest battle is the fighting the people who are the people of covenant before you, in your own household, before you even get to the battlefront. Goliath is nothing for a shepherd with a stone that kills a bear and a lion. It's his big brother that's a problem, who falsely accuses him of pride and arrogance. It's his boss, the king who he plays music for, who just says, there's no way, you're too young, you can't do this. You're crazy. So when you know you're called to take a step of faith, you need to know that you know. And we tell this to everyone. When Sam and Joanna went to Pennsylvania, I said, you're going to get back here and you're going to wonder if you really should have gone. gone. So make sure that you and your wife know that you know you're called. Anyone that's ever gone out of their comfort zone in steps of faith, the faraway place is like when Jennifer Monroe went to Afghanistan and stuff like that. When you arrive at Kabul Airport and those people don't pick you up, which is a true story from our own congregation just two years ago, when you're sitting at Kabul Airport and your ride's not didn't come to get you, and you're a woman, you got to know that you know that you're called to be there. You just got to know. You can't be double-clutching and second-guessing. You need to be there confident in the Lord that you know who you believe in, that you're called, and you've got a just cause. 
and you belong there. And you got to know whatever chaos is going on around you, that God called you to be there with him. So when David comes on this scene, he's not trying to manufacture some sort of moral high ground or super character or super faith. He is who he is, like you are who you are and who I am who I am. We know who we are when we face a giant. And we know how we're going to frame that, look at that, shape that, and respond to that. That's, we're going to know. And if our heart is for the Lord like David, and we have testimonies of God's faithfulness in our life prior to that, it's nothing, as Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, big God, little problem, little God, big problem. It's all how you frame it. And it's the simplest but truest words. Either God's on the throne, God of wonders over a trillion galaxies, or you're on the throne and you're in big trouble because that's Goliath of Gath. It's got to be one or the other. You have to know the battle is the Lord's and you have to know you belong to the Lord and you have to know he's got your back. And David knew all those things. These men talked about the three benefits. You get the girl, you get the money, and you don't pay taxes. Did you catch that? Because that's how the world works, right? How do all the politicians of the world get things done? You know, it's on someone's laptop somewhere. You get the girl, you get the money, you don't pay taxes. That's how these crooked people work in the world. Little winking of the eyes, shuffling of the feet, little backdoor deals. All this conniving and scheming that men and women do in power, the cover-ups, the, the suicides, and all this stuff they do. They get the girl, they get the money, and they don't pay taxes. But that's not how God's people work. That's what motivates those people. You can be the richest man on earth and still be a miser over a dime. You can be the richest man on earth economically and be the most broke person on earth because you don't have one person that cares about you or loves you because you never loved anybody. See, the world thinks about not paying taxes, more money, and getting the girl. But David thinks about the Lord and a just cause and what's right and doing what's right. And David knows the Lord and the heart of God. The Lord is my shepherd because he was a shepherd. And being a shepherd, he understood God's heart. And David became that man. And he was that woman for the ladies here. It's never about the temporal incentivization of temporal wealth that moves the woman of God or the man of God. It's about a just cause and what's right before the living God and seeing the day of the Lord. That's what motivates us. And a just cause is always a just cause. And there's so many just causes on planet Earth right now of a minority raising up a voice of sanity, simplicity, and biblical truth against absolute demonic delusion and insanity. And Jesus Christ will always be on the right side of the just cause because he is the just cause. It's his universe. And God is light, and there is no darkness at all. So as long as we as disciples of Jesus Christ, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, align our mind and our heart with Jesus Christ, we'll come on that situation day to day, give us a stare, day to bread, and we will see the situation the way God sees it, and we're not going to blink. The big bad wolf, the bully, whatever, it's just like whatever. It doesn't add to or take from my place in the kingdom of God or the glory I'm going to. So let's do what we're called to do. What is this? Forget, I could care less about that stuff, the taxes, the girl, and the money. This guy is an uncircumcised Philistine occupying what belongs to the Lord. That is the issue here. This is darkness. This is the power of darkness. In fact, David could have said, and when I fight him, the first thing he's going to do is call on his God against our God. And I'm going to strike him down and rip his head off. 
Because a just cause is always a just cause. I witnessed an accident a few weeks ago, and one of the people who claimed to be a witness said, when I got out of the car, try to tell me I didn't see what I saw. It happened right in front of me. I know exactly what I saw. And I said, no, that's not what happened. It happened like this. I saw it right in front of me. My wife's a witness. It happened right in front of us. I'm 100% certain what I saw. And when you're trying to tell me, I was like, no, you saw this. I'm like, no, the truth is the truth. And I know what I saw. And then it got a little chirpy. It got pretty chirpy. Like Jennifer had to call the pastor back to the car. Because it was a just cause for someone else. Because this man was trying to bully a kid who was the victim and trying to make him the perpetrator. And that's not going to go with me. And like I gave a statement to the insurance people, no, uh, that doesn't go with me. You want to lie about me or do something about me, you can do that. But listen, I turned around to be a witness figure, and all these people would have the same witness, and it's a group of people with a false witness. And I tell you, my wife and I know exactly what we saw. And the last thing I say to that guy before Jennifer called me back in the car, I was like, the truth is always the truth, and the truth will always be found out. So if you feel like you've had an unjust cause or been thrown and violated wrongly by falsehood, just know this, the truth will always be the truth. And the truth will always be known on the day of the Lord. And David knows the truth. And he knows that Jehovah is God. And the land of Israel belongs to the people of promise. And he's going to put his faith in action and prove his faith in this chapter, in the next few verses. And he doesn't need someone else's armor to get credit for what he does or try and become something he's not to appease someone who's over him. He doesn't need to prove that he's not prideful to his brother who's just trying to twist things. Don't you hate bullies who do stuff like that? Where they twist things? Like they make you, they, they, what they are to try and make you? It's, it's crazy how evil human beings can be, but the heart is desperately wicked. That's what God says. Don't be that woman. Don't be that guy. Truth is truth. Humility is humility. A just cause is a just cause. And those are all things that are working for David who beat the bear and beat the lion previously in, the, in his life. Which just proves, too, when we have little victories, they give us confidence and strength for future victories. When we step out in faith and see God do good things and protect us, we gain, we gain greater strength to step out in faith for other things that God has for us. It's poco y poco. It's little by little. And God gives the increase. Like Joseph in the book of Genesis, you're faithful in your dad's house, you're faithful in Potiphar's house, you're faithful in the prison, and now you're running the world, the world's wealth. Because God did give you victory with the bear. He did give you victory with the lion. And those secret things that you do that are right with the Lord, that are a just cause, a shepherd defending the sheep, God sees it, he honors it, and he prepares you for that day. You don't know when we're faithful to a just cause in little things in our world how that will set us up for bigger things later on in your lives, especially you younger people. If you can build a pattern of being faithful in the little things as you go through life, you get entrusted with bigger things. And God knows he can trust you with bigger things. Or we'll use the Michael Jordan baseball analogy. If you can hit a double-A curveball, you can play in the majors. But if you can't, you're not going to play in the majors. Michael Jordan could never hit a double-A curveball. Neither could Tim Tebow. That's why they never became major league baseball players. Well, God has a minor league that prepares you for the big leagues. You be faithful in each level, and you stand for a just cause, and you see his faithfulness, you go after the bear, you go after the lion. What is the Philistine? I mean, this kid was a teenager, and he beat a bear and a lion. I see a video of a bear, I'm scared. 
Even a happy video of a bear, like in a documentary on an airplane. Oh, look, a happy bear getting salmon out of the river. I'm terrified of bears. Who goes after a bear? Shepherds, when the bear has your sheep. And these are God's people, his sheep. David will refer to the people of Israel as God's sheep, as a king. And these are sheep. This is a bear. This is a lion. This is a wolf. And he's going to take it down. But not in Saul's armor. The church doesn't fight the battle with weapons of flesh and carnality. Our weapons are mighty in God for turning down strongholds, as the court was sharing. We fight our battles with the armor of God and prayer. All you men coming here last Saturday praying, that was awesome. Saw those photos, Sam sent it to me. That's how we fight our battles. Ours is a spiritual battle. And the psychological warfare, whatever. Yeah, the devil can beat you up all night, take away a good night's sleep, give you a three-day headache in Chattanooga. But in the end, the battle is the Lord's. And only thing that matters is being faithful in the little things and the big things. So I read on. David, David was, he had a just cause. Of course, that's what he said in verse 29, is not the cause just. He had God's past faithfulness, and he's going to go for it. So verse 40, we read this. Then David took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag and a pouch which he had, and his sling was in his hand. And he drew near to the Philistine, so the Philistine came and began drawing near to David. And the man who bore the shield went before him, and when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was only a youth, uh, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. See, it's always a spiritual battle. Whether it's spoken as such, it is such. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and beasts of the field. It's like Goliath Goliath is like king of the octagon like MMA or something like he's just that guy and he just he he talks a talk he's got 150 pounds of armor and he his he he's got psychological warfare he he wins 85% of his matches before he ever even gets in the ring with another Philistine in a wrestling match he's that champion and he's so used to just speaking words to bully people and beat him down verbally and take control with manipulation and control of how he talks to them and what he does I want to feed you the birds of the field. So all he knows is he, talk, he, he talks people down. He beats people down with his words. Him and Dagon, his little fish god, they beat people down. They intimidate and they bully people, and that's what they do. But he's met a match. And there's no match for the woman of God or the man of God who is fully submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, spirit-filled. And even if they take your life from you, because many people have taken lives from believers in 2,000 years of church history, they can never take the presence of the Lord from you or the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. The bullies of the world have no authority in the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of glory. And if we're doing God's will and we're encountering the bullies and these types of people like Goliath, who curse us by their gods, which is really what a lot of people in political power do. They curse us by their secular gods. I mean, is there a bigger fish god than Darwinism and Marxism combined together to give us communism? Atheistic, antichrist worldview. It's the biggest bully of all. Ronald Reagan said it was the most dangerous threat to the human race is communism because it's antichrist and it's dark and it's evil 
and it justifies taking innocent lives at any cost without any explanation. It fits perfectly for dictators and totalitarians and authoritarians. It'll fit perfectly for the Antichrist, for sure, when he comes to power, with all the power of the devil. And they'll curse us like they cursed previous generations of the church because Jesus said, don't be surprised if the world hates you. They hated me first. They will curse us. And they'll curse us by the power of Dagon and their gods. And their gods might be military power. Their gods might be political power. Their, their gods might be, be the ability to do whatever they want to do, whenever they want to do it, however they want to do it, over our lives. Because that's what totalitarian governments do. And that's what they're doing all over the world right now. That's what they do. But in the end, our hearts and our minds belong to us. We're like Martin Luther putting the 95 Thesis on the church door in Wittenberg. Our conscience and our convictions in the word of God are our, that's our holy ground. Jesus is our chief cornerstone. He is the truth. He is light. It's never going to change. And yeah, there's stuff we don't understand. We've been through two years of not understanding what people have tried to do to the church or even to humanity in the midst of stuff that makes no sense. But doesn't Jesus make sense in it all? Our life can be a whirling dervish of a hurricane of chaos, but Jesus is peace in the storm, no matter what's going on in our personal life or things that affect all of us. Timothy sent a photo today of the order for the wedding dress of his wife, Erica, from the wedding was back in November. It was a beautiful day, beautiful three days for our family, all of us there. The wedding dress came from Ukraine, from a woman in Kiev. And Timmy said, isn't it crazy that she's not there now? Because evidently she's not. She left. She's one of the six million refugees that left Ukraine. Six weeks ago, they were drinking coffee at cafes, underestimating what Russia would do. And let me tell you, I know my world history, and I'll tell you one thing you always say about Russia. Never poke the bear. Never. And collectively, a lot of people poke the bear. And now the whole world's feeling the brunt of it across the board, all of us. All of us are profoundly affected, and it's not even or nearly close to being resolved. But I thought, like, what if that was us seven weeks ago having coffee at Moon Goat or Vacancy on PCH? And we were displaced as refugees. Who could know? But listen, WG, Body of Christ, in America, worldwide, this stuff happens in every generation. All the time. All the time. There's displacement. What the Germans did to the Belgians in the first six weeks of World War I is so, such atrocities, it makes anything in the last 80 years pale in comparison to what the Germans did when they went into Belgium at the beginning of World War I on their march to Paris, coming about 30 miles short. So what it really comes back to is not so much Goliath and Dagon and the bully god, the fish god, bully gods, Chamoth is a bully god, but the fish god, they're all kind of one and the same. They're all the devil. Paul said behind every idol is a demon, so they're all demonic entities. But not being moved. Like Paul said, I'm not moved. These things don't move me. Nor do I count my life dear to me that I complete the race that was set before me by the Lord Jesus Christ. What he said to the Ephesian elders there in, Ephesus, uh, there in the book of Acts chapter 20. Like, so, that moment, because this is the apex, because we all face Goliath talking us down, beating us down, making evil good and good evil, and 
so crafty at doing it because the devil's been so, he's got all of time, space, and matter, it would seem, in twisting truth and making it evil and twisting evil and making it good. I mean, he twisted scripture to Jesus. How, how bold and blatant is that from Satan himself? Who can stand before Jesus Christ and twist scripture out of context? Satan, that's who. Who's coming to power? The Antichrist with all the power of Satan. So why would we be surprised that people in power twist evil to make it good and good to make it evil? But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the battle is the Lord's. And having done all, stand. So the real test for the church in 2022 and our future is the same as it's been in the past from all the great saints that came before us is to having done all, stand. To be faithful, to stand in the truth, to hold fast to the truth, and never move from the truth. Because as my son Luke the lawyer always says, the truth is always the truth and will never change. The safest place to be is truth. If you make stuff up, you forget your lies and you start saying stuff like, depends on what it is. Because you don't know what you're talking about. But if you're telling the truth, the truth is always the truth. Jesus is the truth. So we stand in Jesus, we're always going to be standing in the truth. It's the safest place to be when you're facing giants. Whether it's the grave itself with terminal illness that we might face, or death threats that we could face, or bullies that just never go away. They, they get mightier by the day. They might be personal bullies. They might be governmental bullies. Could be, could be anything or anybody. But for the believer, the believer in Jesus Christ, the disciple of Jesus Christ is, we got the Lord, and the battle is the Lord's, and we can't be moved from that. We can never forget that God has our back, and he's look, looking for those who show themselves faithful. And sometimes it's like, you just got to have a three-day migraine in Chattanooga. And that's just the price of the, the ministry that God's doing through you and me. I've, I, I, know, I know. Anyone that's ever gone for it, I know some of you have really gone for it big time with the Lord. It's, it's like, you got to go for it. See, I think the greatest danger when you get older is to kick it in cruise control. And I have purpose in my heart to do the exact opposite. I have purpose in my heart to just find another gear and keep cranking it up and cranking it up. C.S. Spurgeon said, I'd rather flame out than rust out. And I'm like, I'm feeling that one. It's combustible. Where'd Joey go? He just blew up. Where'd that person go? Oh, they're rusting over there in a field like an antiquity car sitting in a field gaining rust. How do they just like, what happened? He just, boom, he just went nuclear. Like, it's gone. With Jesus. Or just like, over here, kicking it, cruise control. No. You can do that in surfing. Get your longboard and surf the cliffs. But don't, don't do that with Jesus. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you know, you come with the sword and the spear of the javelin, but I come with you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you, to you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. Then all the assemblies shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. You know, sometimes you just got to stand up to the bully. 
He's going to say, hey, no, that's not the way it is. That might work. That might work on these other people. But around here, Jesus is Lord and Jesus is the king. And it doesn't mean we're aggressive or obnoxious or, or, or angry even. It just means we know who we believed in and we're persuaded he's going to keep that which we've committed to him until that day. And we know that the battle is the Lord's. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So let's go. Now, this is war, real war. But most of us might not really would never really see this in like lesser law enforcement or military, which we do have some people would maybe know this a bit more. But for most of us, it's like, I, I, this is a great story. And it's a true story. And I'm greatly encouraged by it because David, he didn't let his big brother get him off his, off his point. He didn't let his king get him off his point. And he certainly didn't let Goliath get him off his point. He had passion, purpose, commitment, zeal, and he's moving forward. And he's, he's not messing around. Like, it's a little bit of trash talking, like John and chirping. There's nothing more to say. You're coming at me in the name of Dagon. I'm coming at you in the name of the living God and I'm going to cut your head off and the birds are going to eat your flesh and your army's flesh today. So how's that working for you? It's a great story. The battle is the Lord's. See, it wasn't David getting the rewards of these three things, men, excuse me, women, money, and tax exempt. It's David. He could care less about any of that. It's all about the Lord. What did David do at the end of his life? He gave all his wealth to the Lord. Like his sons benefited, but his son made much more money than he ever did. But David took all the wealth he ever acquired and he gave it to the building of the temple for his son to build the temple. Is there a better way to step into eternity than giving all your money to the kingdom for when you're gone? Is there? Those eternal dividends, eternal dividends when you're gone? Verse 48. So it was when the Philistines arose and came near to meet David that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David... uh, then David put his hand in his bag, took out the stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead so that the stone sank to his forehead. He fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, David ran over, stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. That's a fairly violent story, isn't it? But it's war. We've had images on TV for the last, or in news for the last seven weeks of how violent war is. War is violent. War is brutal. War is brutal. And David did what he had to do. And by the way, we do know because David was a man of blood, he wasn't able to build the temple. So he paid a price for being special forces, right? He did probably have PTS of various forms. You know? Like, there was a price. He couldn't build the temple. And he really wanted to build the temple. He loved the Lord. But God said, don't worry, you're not going to build me a temple. I'm going to build you a house, an everlasting household. And he prophesied how Jesus would come through his line. God is so good. But David was victorious, and it inspired everybody else. So we read on in the back end of that verse, verse 51. It says, And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Shaharim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. And when Saul saw David going out against the Philistines, he said to Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, inquire whose son this young man is. 
Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now, of course, David already had the relationship with Saul. But it's funny, so often, like, you might have someone in your wheelhouse, and you see them one way, and then you see what they can do, and you realize you greatly underestimated who they were, their potential, their greatness, what was there all along. You're like, whoa, did not, what do we say sometimes? Did not see that coming. But when the people, you have people like David around you, and they're men and women of faith, they're going to surprise you. You might underestimate them. Because again, David's greatness was the Lord's call in his life and his confidence in the Lord. And so we're really set up for next week when we come back and we see David being called to the palace full time, what he's going to face with, with Saul, working for Saul full time, and then even being his son-in-law. We're going to see all that as we go forward and there's going to be some very interesting chapters in front of us. But this is an apex moment in David's life. And it's an inspiring moment. In fact, wouldn't we agree that it's probably one of the most famous stories in human history? If you look at Greek mythology, Aesop's fables, writings of the Romans, various historical writings and whatnot, almost everybody, well, not almost everybody, but more people than not know the story of David and Goliath. And even people who have no interest in Jesus or the word of God know the story of David and Goliath. And the theme is the underdog, but it really isn't about the underdog. It's about Jesus Christ being Lord over all things and honoring those who honor him. And so I leave us with this famous verse that we all know. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the battle is the Lord's. And we can face whatever we got to face. We can do whatever we got to do. Whoever's out there, the boogeyman and Goliath of Gath and whoever else. Because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And his grace is sufficient for today, and his mercies are new every morning. So, Church of Jesus Christ, always forward, forward, onward, and upward.